This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast. I am Hal Hammonds and I am a citizen of heaven and I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring you this message of hope today from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number 30, dated October 29th in the year of our Lord, 2019. I bid God's grace and peace to all my fellow sojourners here in this earthly plane. I remain sound in body, alert in mind, and energized in spirit. I'm pleased to bring you this report of my recent labors in the Lord. Here's a synopsis. I've been preaching about being born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes a powerful and unmistakable impact on the souls he touches. If you don't know what I mean, maybe that should tell you something. I've been reading Luke, the gospel account that presents Jesus as the master teacher, but no matter how great a teacher he is, he will do us no good if we don't listen. I've been hearing Kobe Bryant is teaching youth girls basketball and they've come a long way in two years. The apples are not falling too far from the tree. I've been playing City of Spies Estrel 1942. If you were recruiting people to join Jesus in his resistance against the forces of evil, which approach would you use? I say, why not all of them? Are you ready? Here we go. This is what I've been preaching. The Gospel according to John is well known for the record of the conversations that Jesus has with individuals along the way, most of which are not included or even alluded to in the other Gospel accounts. One such account is in chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a teacher of the law, evidently a member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin court. And he expresses an interest in Jesus. He says, no one can do the signs that you do except God is with him. And Jesus does not thank him for his support and, and curry some kind of political favor. Instead, he essentially starts criticizing Nicodemus for his lack of understanding, which is about the last thing in the world a doctor of the law would have expected to hear from Jesus or from anybody else as far as that goes. He begins talking to him about this new birth. He starts in verse number th uh, five, for instance, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I tell you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Now, the idea of being baptized in water and the Spirit is a fascinating concept. Uh, I have yet to hear anybody explain to me why being born of water is not referring to baptism. I don't want to get too sidetracked on that point here today, but the text talks repeatedly about baptism, uses it in the context of water. Uh, this new birth is described in Romans chapter 6. Uh, it's pretty clear, in my mind anyway, that being born of water is talking about Water baptism, baptism in the name of Jesus for remission of sins, as was practiced in the New Testament church. Somebody might say, well, uh, surely baptism is just an outward act. It's, it's not about the heart. The heart is the important thing. Well, no, I say that's where being born of the Spirit comes in. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, interacting in our hearts, interacting in our lives, is blowing on us. In fact, the word spirit in the Greek, the word pneuma, is the same word that we see for for wind. It's, that's a play on words that Jesus is using here in John chapter 9. And the emphasis is on the impact that God has on people's lives. That the Spirit blows where it's going to blow. The impact that Jesus has, that the, the Word has, and that's essentially the working of the Spirit, the, 
the Holy Spirit was sent to the apostles, John chapter 16, verse 13, to guide them into all the truth. What we read in the New Testament is the working of the Holy Spirit. When we read the words of the Holy Spirit, the wind is blowing on us. And the question is, what's it going to do? And the answer is, if it touches good people, if it touches those souls who are right for the gospel, then it has a profound impact. It blows them considerably, blows them into a different place. We live in Florida now, and it's hurricane country. And we know all about wind and what it blows. There was a uh, wind that blew through here a year ago, and I still see bent trees not too far away from our house. Uh, that's the impact that wind has. You don't see wind. You see the effect of wind. And likewise, you don't see the Holy Spirit. But you do see what the Holy Spirit is doing in people's lives. It is transforming. He, rather, is transforming the lives of Christians. We don't fully understand how that works, but we just know that it does work. There's a great parable given to us in Mark chapter 4. In the midst of all these other parables about the uh, the sower and the leaven and, and mustard seed and things of that nature, he, he talks about a farmer that goes out into the field and, and sows the seed. And the seed grows and he doesn't know how. The, the farmer doesn't understand this process. He just knows if he puts the seed in the soil, good things are going to happen. And that's what happens with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit touches the lives of individuals, either has a... He had, either has a, a drawing or a repelling effect. The, the wind can either do damage or it can do good. It can clean us up or clear us out. And what the Spirit is doing in our lives as Christians is it is purifying us. It is drawing us closer, blowing us, if you will, closer to God. And that is a powerful, powerful thing. It happens in baptism and it happens after baptism also. The more we are given over to the working of the Spirit, the more we allow ourselves to be born of the Spirit, the more of an impact the Spirit is going to be seen to have in our individual lives. If we don't give ourselves over to this work, though, it's not going to happen. We have to choose to be born of the Spirit. When we do, great things are going to happen to us. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. Sticking with the theme of how the Spirit works in our life, how we follow, or as the case may be, do not follow the words of Jesus, I'd like to refer you to the Gospel according to Luke, where Jesus is presented by the inspired author as the master teacher. We see this over and over again, a much more of an emphasis on parables, on on interaction with, with others. And Luke portrays Jesus as one that we want to follow after, and yet one that a lot of people did not follow after. And Jesus himself alludes to this any number of times. Uh, there's a, a great phrase that comes up, not just in Luke or just in the Gospels, even in Revelation, in his letters to the seven churches of Asia. We see it again. in after The first time it occurs in Luke, anyways, in Luke chapter 8, and verse number eight, after having told the parable of the sower, which is an important story, how the seed will sometimes fall on the wayside soil or sometimes in the rocky soil or the thorny soil. And then sometimes it hits the good ground and produces good things. He says on this occasion, he who has ears to hear, uh, ears to hear let him hear. And that causes some confusion. Of course, the people weren't necessarily expecting to hear, to have to interpret what Jesus had to say anyway. And Jesus enlightens them a little bit, at least some of them. The disciples begin questioning him in verse number nine as to what the parable means. 
And he says in verse number 10, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And now that may seem a little bit odd if you're used to thinking of Jesus as the one who wants everybody to be saved, who wants everybody to understand and to, to go to heaven and not go to hell, which of course is true. But at the same time, Jesus is not going to force anyone into compliance. Jesus is going to require us to commit ourselves to him deliberately. And that means choosing to have what he calls here ears to hear. Now, how do you know the difference between having ears to hear and not having ears to hear? And the difference is, of course, whether you are or are not a disciple. The disciples came to Jesus asking for an explanation of these things. And he, they received an explanation for these things. And that is the essence of being a disciple, being a learner, a constant learner. We are always going back to the word. We're always going back to the Lord, trying to find better knowledge, find, find deeper wisdom, helping us to understand his will for our lives a little bit better so that we can explain it to somebody else. That's what we do as Christians. That's what we're always doing, constantly doing. Having ears to hear means choosing to be this wayside or the, uh, the fertile soil, choosing to be that kind of person that wants to give the gospel a room in our heart. And, uh, allowing it to, to develop and grow and nurture. And it says here, bear fruit, sometimes a hundredfold, sometimes 60, sometimes 30. That's what the gospel will do in the heart of a soul that is genuinely devoted to his things. Now, a similar expression comes up in the very next chapter, in Luke chapter 9, in verse number 43. They're all amazed at the greatness of God, but while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. And he's talking to his close associates here, his apostles. He says, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the statement. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Uh, this is a, a marvelous insight into the will of God with regard to his disciples. It was not God's plan, necessarily, that everything be revealed to the, uh, the apostles at this point. They revealed, it was revealed to them later on, when it was important for them to know. But at this point, they're very much like, like us, quite frankly somewhat in the dark, not having a full understanding. Eventually, they're going to have a complete understanding of the work of Jesus. They didn't at this point, and we don't either. And so, therefore, we have to continue to give ourselves over to the gospel, continue to allow it to, to sink into our hearts. And the problem is, oftentimes, as was the case here with the apostles and the doctrine regarding the resurrection and the crucifixion, he's going to say things that we don't understand, and he's going to say things that, quite frankly, we don't like. And that we wish were not true. And that is going to create a barrier. That's going to create a stumbling block for us to separate us from the will of God. And what we need to do is continue in these hours to have ears to hear. To realize that we are mistaken on this. That, that we must be mistaken because Jesus isn't. The Holy Spirit is speaking with one voice. The Holy Spirit is speaking consistently. And we have confidence that the Bible is guiding us in the way that we should go. If that is the case... If the Bible is in fact accurate, if the Bible is in fact all sufficient, going to give us everything pertaining to the life and godliness, the text says in 2 Peter 1 verse 3. If that is the case, then we have to just dig a little bit deeper in these moments. We have to focus a little bit harder and find that nugget of truth that Jesus is trying to offer to us there. If we have ears to hear, we'll be able to do it. If we do not, we may wind up being instead the, the rocky soil or the thorny soil that he talked about also in that same parable. We owe the Lord more than that. So let's continue to devote ourselves to his things, even and particularly 
when his things don't seem to make a lot of sense. They don't seem to be serving our short-term purposes. They don't seem to be going the way that we would have gone if we were in charge. We acknowledge that he's in charge, and therefore we continue to listen to him instead of listening to ourselves. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. I have not been private about my disregard for the NBA over the last decade or two. I used to follow the NBA a lot. I've, I've kind of lost interest over the years for reasons that don't particularly matter here. But you'd have to be an alien to not know who Kobe Bryant is. Uh, Kobe Bryant is one of the greatest players of all time, a longtime star for the Los Angeles Lakers, a multiple championship winner, MVP, all that kind of thing. And now, youth girls basketball coach. I found that kind of interesting, that he is compelled to teach young girls. I don't know why girls particularly. I think he has a daughter. But to teach them what playing basketball means to him. He named his team the Mambas, which is not surprising. That's his nickname, of course. He was known as the Mamba forever. And he recently posted on uh, on social media a picture of his team from a couple of years ago. And they were all disconsolate, and they're holding these participation trophies, and they're not very happy about it. I don't know if they were trained to not be happy about it by their coach, or they just naturally disinclined, but they didn't do very well. They only finished fourth, and they're not pleased about it. And he mentioned how seven of his current team was on that team back two years before. And six of them were in that photo that the been out of shape photo. One of them was not because she had chosen to be at a dance recital instead of the basketball game. And clearly he did not approve of that choice. And here they are in, in the modern day. And there was a, a picture taken of them before the scoreboard. And I forget exactly what the score is, but it's extraordinarily lopsided in, in favor of the Mambas. And saying this is the same team two years later, uh, playing against the same team, and look how much better we are. And they are happy, they're joyful, they're jumping for joy literally. They are winners instead of fourth place winners, which in the mind of Kobe Bryant, of course, is a loser. And apparently in the mind of his children also. And a lot of people uh, look at this and see everything that is wrong about youth sports. It's all about winning. It's all about drive. It's all about achieving and, and pushing the kids and, and getting them out of their comfort zone and, and not accepting failure and, and thinking second place is not good enough and, and not approving of them the way they are. And, and I'm not sure exactly how much I disagree with that. I think that youth sports can, in fact, be taken to way, way, way too far of an extreme. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen to the detriment of families in the church. But the idea of, of winning and trying to win, and breeding in a new generation an attitude of winning it is something that has value in our society. And I'm not necessarily the biggest Kobe Bryant fan. I'm not saying that I would want my children to be basketball players on his team. And maybe you wouldn't either. But here's the thing. If you don't like your children to be coached to the nth degree, if you don't want them milked for every bit of success that they can possibly muster, if you don't want them pushed to their limits to find out exactly who they are and what they're all about, if you don't like that, don't put your kid on Kobe Bryant's basketball team. That's as simple as it gets. 
if you do want that, then seek out Kobe's basketball team. That That's pretty much standard. If Kobe is going to put his name on the jersey of his team, they are going to be a reflection of him, of his attitude, of his work ethic, of his priorities. You may or may not disagree uh, agree with that or disagree with that. But that's the way it's going to be on the Kobe Bryant team. That's the way it's going to be on the Mambas. And that sort of attachment between coach and team is, I think, a very natural kind of thing. And to a certain degree, an unavoidable kind of thing. And it puzzles me, quite frankly, that we have so many Christians who sign up for Jesus' team. They want to play for Jesus. And they want to wear Jesus' name. And then they go out there and compete for Jesus and give a half-hearted effort. And whenever they are chastened by their teammates, as it were, or chastened by the word, by Jesus through the word, they get all offended. They get all upset. You don't love me the way I am. You don't approve of me the way that I am. It's not about the way you are. It's about the way your savior is. It's about the way your leader is that we are trying to achieve at his level. And that may seem daunting. That may seem impossible, in fact, from time to time. But this is the goal that we have set in front of us. I've been crucified with Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live in the body. I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not me calling the shots anymore. It's not me determining what kind of lifestyle I'm going to have. I'm giving that over to Jesus. I'm surrendering it to him and allowing him to have his way with me. That's going to mean being uncomfortable. And that's going to mean me, it's going to mean me being dissatisfied with poor performance not discouraged necessarily, not disheartened because Jesus is there. I don't know what kind of day-to-day relationship Kobe has with his players, uh, but I know what kind of relationship Jesus has with his people. It is a nurturing, a loving, a supportive arrangement. Not one that ignores failure, but one that overcomes failure, that pushes through failure, that allows us to become better than we were before. Not just better versions of ourselves, as oftentimes is said, but rather close imitators, as much as we can be anyway, close imitators of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, that's what Paul said. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. It's all about becoming like he is. And surely any kind of sacrifice, any kind of compromise of commitment is appropriate if that's what we really want in our lives. There's going to come a time when you have to choose between the dance recital or whatever and Jesus. And in that day, if we are God's people, if we are truly the called, if we truly are devoted to Jesus, that choice becomes easy because there's nothing in the world that we want even remotely close to what Jesus is offering us. And if Jesus asks us to walk through fire, if Jesus asks us to swim oceans, if Jesus asks us to climb mountains, that's what we are going to do. Because we believe that he has our best interest at heart. We believe that he knows better than we do. And we believe that if we submit to his will, to his judgment, We are going to achieve at his level. That's how good a coach he is. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But if you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. The tour of the Hammonds family board game collection with Portuguese themes 
brings us to City of Spies Estral 1942, which is a handful of a, of a name. And it's a very, very good game, one that we enjoy gr a great deal, all four of us do. It's taking the game players to World War II and to Portugal, which was neutral at the time, but provided easy access to America for those who were able to find a transatlantic flight, which is now a thing in the 1940s. The, a lot of people apparently were not real keen on sticking around in a Nazi-dominated Europe, and they wanted to get out. Nazis were not excited about letting them get out, and so therefore there was a lot of intrigue, a lot of stuff going on. Have you ever seen Casablanca? You know a little bit about that, although that was in North Africa, obviously, instead of Portugal. So what you have in the game is six different locations in the city. And at these various locations, various things are going on and spies are being recruited. Uh, each player is basically trying to recruit a team of spies using the spies that they are already assigned at the beginning of the game. Each one of these locations has a spy already there. Uh, usually they are hidden. Not always, but usually. And the spies that are assigned by the various players to those locations determines where that spy is going to go, whose team he's going to join, essentially. And you want to recruit as many and as good a spies as you possibly can. That's how you win the game. Sometimes your spies that are going out and getting these ones are just simply stronger. If you have a total value of six, you're going to beat somebody who has a total value of five. That's the way that it works. And so maybe that's how you're going to recruit them. Or maybe you have some kind of special tactic. Maybe you are one who is good at intrigue. Maybe you're good at assassination. You're just going to kill whoever else is on the space. Whatever, whatever approach you want to take, you do whatever you have to do. It's a kind of a take that sort of game, which is not something we usually get a lot of in the Hammonds family, but we really enjoy it in City of Spies. And it made me think a little bit about our spiritual warfare, because we are at war. We are at in a world war, essentially, a war for the souls of men and women. And Jesus is calling us not only to do battle, but also to recruit people to our side, to find people who will fight alongside of us. And we have a variety of tactics that we are encouraged to engage in, all of which, of course, under the, the blanket umbrella of, of morality and decency, as Jesus teaches us. We're not, it's not a free-for-all, as it were. We have to abide by the rules. But those rules allow for a variety of approaches. Maybe we should tell people how wonderful it is to be in the cause of Jesus Christ. Maybe we should tell people what wonderful things have happened to us and happened to other people because we came to the side of Jesus. Maybe we should just scare them to death. Maybe we should talk to them about hell until they give in. What, which one's the best approach? And the answer, of course, is all of the above. These are all appropriate tactics to use. If you are good at one or if one is particularly effective in one particular area, then use that tactic, whatever it takes. The idea that one size is going to fit all, this cookie-cutter approach to evangelism, is just nonsense. Uh, we don't see that in the New Testament. We don't see that in the life of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, starting in verse number 20, to the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak so that I may win the weak. I become all things to all men so that I may be by all means save some. And sometimes we stop there, but read on through verse number 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. So that I might become, uh, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. He's saying here that as a Christian, as not just as an apostle, but as a Christian, as someone who wears the name of Jesus Christ, 
it is my obligation to reach out to those who are lost and to win them over. And one person may respond to one tactic and one person may respond to a different tactic. That's why the, the letters that Paul writes read somewhat differently because he's writing to different audiences. He writes differently to individuals than he would be uh, writing to groups. One group uh, receives a different kind of letter than another group. Uh, Galatians sounds very angry because that's appropriate for that, for that setting. Philippians sounds very loving and nurturing because that's appropriate for that setting. He is able to become all things to all people, not just in his letters, of course, but also in his personal interaction. And that's what we need to be able to do also. It's not appropriate for us to simply say, well, I'm kind of a hellfire and brimstone kind of guy, and, and I'm going to preach hellfire and brimstone to everyone who I reach. And if they can't take it, then that's just their problem. Well, yes, it is their problem, but it's also our problem because we are obligated to harness our words, to bring them under subjection, to season them with, uh, with salt, as Paul says in Colossians 4, verse 6. We need to find the best way, not just a way, but the best way to help people realize how important it is for them to leave the domain of darkness and to come into the domain of the Son of, G of God's love. That is the opportunity that we give the people of the world. That's the opportunity that we were privileged to take part in ourselves. And surely we owe it to our neighbors to present the best way, the most effective way, for them to find their way to the truth. This is our task. This is our job as recruiters, if you will, or soldiers, whatever term you want to use. If we're going to have an impact in this battle that we are fighting against the devil, we need to find as many weapons as we possibly can and get as effective as we can in the use of every single one of them. Because this is war. And we're going to need all the weaponry we can possibly muster for ourselves. All the weaponry that Jesus has given to us. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you profited from your time here, I have a few requests of you. Please pray for me and for this work. We need more citizens of heaven. And our prayer is that we be part of achieving this objective. Please subscribe to this podcast and give a good rating on iTunes and other sites that allow you to do such things and spread the word to your friends. Please follow my work through my website, www.halhammons.com. There you'll find links to articles, videos, and books of mine. Seek me out on social media. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, and especially Facebook. Look for me and for my pages, The Final Word, The Preacher, 20 Pages a Week, and Citizen of Heaven. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, The Citizen of Heaven, signing off.